Well, we're silly. We are silly. We are silly as can be. It's the last day of 2023, and we're recording two episodes, and we're very caffeinated. And a little sleepy at the same time. Yes. Mm-hmm. All of that yes. at once. 100% sleepy. But... I think that's a good energy for us to go into talking about. The dreamlike logic of Vertigo. For sure. I mean, we already wrapped Kane, and that's sort of got its own... We had our big Kane energy last week. We had big Kane energy, and it's sort of meandering. (laughs) (laughs) This is much more direct, and it is just one guy. The plot is not jumping around. It is in your face, but it is hypnotic. Yes. And hopefully this episode will be. Yes, well, we would hope so. We are going to talk very... (laughs) No. Well, we have to be anxiety-inducing as well. So. <laughs> Get off the ledge, Dalton. <laughs> Hello, everybody, and welcome <laughs> to the Good Trash Autocast, <laughs> where we gather around the table and discuss the films. You'll never discuss a film says course unless you're listening in January, which is our month of anti-trash, our pot cleanser from the year before, in which we look at not trash movies. And this year's marathon are the BFI Top um, 4. Uh, from the top the four greatest movies of all time, the four greatest movies of all time, according to the BFI and Sight and Sound. We've done Tokyo Story, we've done Citizen Kane. Now we're doing Vertigo. By- Can't wait to hit Dwayne Johnson's rampage next week. Uh, man, I am I am worried about what the Sight and Sound list looks like in you know 2082. I have the eyes of Charles Foster Kane's mother now. Um, <laughs> yeah, just dead, dead inside. Dead, dead, dead inside. inside. I have the doll's eyes. Uh, so. <laughs> This film is number two right now. Mm-hmm. In 2012, it was number one. Yes. Finally overtaking Citizen Kane. After 60 years. Something like that. Liter- yeah, I think literally 60 years. About jolly time. Disagree. And uh, here we are. And here it we had are. one reign as king. <laughs> had one, yeah, 10 years. And overtaken by Jenny Dealman, which is a great movie, but not my favorite Chantel Ackerman, but more on that next time. Yeah, um, we'll talk about that next week. I guess, is, but this is, is this your guy's favorite? Uh, uh, Hitch? Hitch? No. Yes. This your no, favorite? No, I don't know. Shadow of a doubt. Psycho. Yeah, Psycho's I think Psycho's good. perfect, man. Yeah, same. I think Shadow of a Doubt's perfect. Shadow of a Doubt's good. Uh, Rear Window. Rear Window's great. I don't know. I mean, that's hard to pick. <laughs> Depends on the day, really, probably, at this point. It, it, yes. Yes, it, it, it's, it's, it's good all the way around. Um, hey, if you're tuning into the show for the very first time, dear listener, though, I am still Dustin. I'm still Arthur. I'm still Dalton. And this is an analysis show, not a review show. And that does mean we're going to spoil this movie from 1958, which means you probably should have seen it by now. But we're going to avoid the spoilers for the first part of the show. We'll have a synopsis. We'll have quick thumbs up, thumbs down reviews, which um, in this uh, month of anti-trash has been more of a general free-for-all, rip-rolling, rollicking bit of nonsense, just talking about the movie and things we like and things we don't like about it, uh, more so than uh, more organized kind of reviews. Then we'll play a little game called Expanding the Syllabus, where in we might have thematic spoilers, but very unlikely will we have um, actual plot spoilers. Then we play music to let you know we've gotten out of business, and that's when all spoiler bets are off. Arthur, do you have a synopsis for us? After tragically discovering a fear of heights and a bad case of vertigo, retired detective John Ferguson, Scotty to his acquaintances, is pulled into a private case at the bequest of an old friend, a case involving possession which slowly leads to obsession. Okay, Cinema Sins, I'm going to tell you right now, nobody nicknames a John Scotty. That's just wrong. I have strong feelings on this. We don't know where that nickname comes from, though. I don't know. It could be because he drinks scotch all the time. Or maybe he's <laughs> from Scotland. I don't know. But or maybe people thought he looked like a Scottish terrier. <laughs> <laughs> maybe his middle name's Scott. We don't know. John so it is Scott. wrong of you to assume. That's Jonathan Scott. A, yeah, um, John Scott Ferguson. Man, that man is an Anglo-Saxon. I'm telling you right now. <laughs> a wasp of the highest order. <laughs> I, I, swear, 
a, ca- a Caucasian. <laughs> trying to do a Jimmy Stewart. <laughs> I'm scared of heights. <laughs> I get it. <laughs> oh boy. Oh, we're in a mood. Uh, so we're moving into the thumbs up, thumbs down thing. This movie is the greatest movie of all time. Uh, you don't. Ten think, years ago, you don't think that. I don't actually think that. Yeah, but it is better than Citizen Kane. I disagree. Agree. Disagree. Hard Str- agree. Hard agree. I can't with you two right now. I'm sorry, I don't get it. It's got uh, it's it's got all the visual panache, all the look, all the style, all the aesthetic. Some proper psychosexual tension. That's fair, and it's interesting. I see. I think Kane's super interesting, but I, maybe that's just because I, you know, because you watch Mank. That's true. It is. If there was a, a, I don't know, a I, Mankless Kane. <laughs> I think the sociological sort of angle like always appeals to me too. Anything that is like about the larger machinations of society is always going to pull me in. Oh, this movie's in. about that. I mean, it is, but Kane is like so much more on its face, I guess. This movie's the pair with Barbie. I mean, that's, yeah. This movie you could pair with literally any movie directed by a man is sort of the thing. Mm, well, that there's makes that it too. Interesting. Uh, I mean, I get what you guys like. The Technicolor in this is like, no movie is this color. His, mm-hmm. The mental breakdown moment is just Sick. next level. Yeah. I mean, if you like the uh, mm-hmm. going beyond Jupiter sequence of 2001, get ready for the mental break in Vertigo. Yeah. It is pretty cool. I See, that's another one. I'm like, Vertigo is better than 2001? What are, yeah. we ta- what are we talking about? It, I is. Mean, it is. You guys are fucking crazy. <laughs> <laughs> 11 years Sorry, I've been man. sitting at this table with you two. I can't believe the things I'm hearing. You would rather sit down and watch 2001 Actually, I don't know Vertigo. If I, I would probably rank 2001 over Vertigo. Really? I don't, I think, I don't think rewatchability is a testament to goodness. Is it to not? quality. No. Hmm. I I'd think, watch Happy Gilmore right now over Vertigo. Nah. I mean, yeah. I like Happy Gilmore a lot. I mean, I'd have to be in a mood for Happy Gilmore, though. I'd have to be in a mood for Vertigo. I can't. I mean, Vertigo's good. And I have to be me forced gun to the head to watch Citizen Kane. Okay, well, let's start here. <laughs> <laughs> That's ridiculous. So let's, I guess, start with our... <laughs> spoiler become... alert. Knowing what I know about myself, I don't think Sean Dillman's going to fare very well next week. <laughs> no. I, knowing how much you hate a movie over two hours, I think Gene Dillman's in trouble. Oh, buddy. I'm going to chop it up into four daily episodes. I, I, I got bad <laughs> What's news What's Sean Dillman getting up to today? Is it Gene or Jean? I think it's Jeannie. In the French, it's Jean. Is it Jean? Yeah. Okay. Um, so I only know that because I was trying to figure out the French pronunciation of the title. That's so I listened to a bunch of interviews. Good. I mean, that's always smart to do. Um, I guess we should start this where we started Kane last week and say, like, what is our relationship to Vertigo? Where, where did we all mm. come to it? Okay. Um, so did you get to this one early, Dustin? No, I don't think I saw this one until like probably 2013, 2014. Really? Somewhere like that. Okay. Yeah. When, uh, no, no, no. Excuse me. 2010 when I first started grad school. Really? Because it was a movie I needed to get to. Huh. I had seen a lot of Hitchcock, but I hadn't seen them all, and yeah. I knew I was going to do this. And so, it, like like your watch of Kane, it was yeah. it was it was one of the movies like checking the box, blind spot, get to yeah. it, and loved it when I did. Yeah. What about you, Art? Because I know you're a huge Hitch guy. Yeah, I mean, Mom showed me this when I was a kid, probably. Really? Probably, okay, that makes sense. I don't know about elementary school, but I was probably very young. I mean, she showed me this. She showed me Psycho. She showed me The Birds and Rear Window, like mm-hmm. very much in that. Sad that of, unstoppable t- phase of his career, yeah. yeah. And so, I, from a very younger age, I've I've known Vertigo, but Psycho still sort of stands apart for you as your favorite Hitch. Yeah, oh yeah, I, it's I mean, really good to me. Psycho's perfectly put out. I mean, I'm with you there. I, I let's say that the ending's rough, but I mean mm-hmm. that's part of the time of it more yeah. than anything. Um, 
So yeah, uh, I, I I like Vertigo a lot. I do. I I think that um, for me, Vertigo, I think of scenes from it quite a bit. But I've only seen it a few times compared to. I mean, I've seen Psycho. I watched Psycho twice this year, right? Uh, and I've seen it multiple times in the last decade. Um, this I've only seen a handful of times. And so I forget things about it. I, you know, I always forget, like, why are they doing this to Scotty? Like, what's the motivation here? Mm-hmm. Like, what is happening? Um, mm-hmm. But I think about the ending a lot. I think about the setup. I think about the sequences, um, them driving around San Francisco, her falling into the bay, um, them going to the mission. Uh, Midge, poor Midge. Uh, poor oh, Midge. The, the wonderful Midge, just so left out in the dark here and left out in the cold, unfortunately. Uh, Scotty doesn't know what he has. Um other than necessity, I guess. <laughs> um, well, no, d- d- yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and so I think that, yeah, I, I think there are things about it that stand out to me when I watch it. I'm always captivated. I mean, walking into Eddie's restaurant mm-hmm. is it, Eddie's, right? And they walk, is that what it's called? Uh, oh, Eddie, God, no, something. no, it's not Eddie's. It's it might be Eddie's. I can't remember. Yeah, but walking into that solid red restaurant. Man, that's so such everybody's good set in design. black and white, and then there's Kim Novak in that green dress, just stunning. Mm-hmm. Use of color, stunning use of costuming. Yeah, the costumes are on point all yeah. the way through oh, the movie. For sure. Yeah, um, I mean the hair and makeup. Uh, not to tip our hand. I know we're head. Yeah, well, yeah. I know we're, we were saying we were going to be spoiler free as we often are until we get down to business. But like the stuff they're doing, with Novak. And hair makeup, half. yeah, holy crap, mm-hmm. yeah, it's incredible. Those eyebrows, yeah, it's really impressive. Yeah, no, they, well, I mean the, the the Judy eyebrows, yeah, I mean are crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean it, 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 you, she's somewhat unrecognizable. Giant caterpillars on her forehead. I showed this to a group of students when we did we did write an essay about the visual rhetoric of cinema. Uh, for my visual rhetoric course, so not a film course. And so we watched it in class, and there were a number because of the break, because we, we broke the movie almost at Scotty's break. Yeah, right before. Yeah, probably. right, right, mission, bef- maybe. right before that, yeah. And so they failed to grasp that it was the same actress. That's not a spoiler. She, they took some time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so, I mean, it's it, it, it's impressive. Yeah. You know, I, for that. I agree. Um, yeah, I, I mean... I don't know, Dalton, what, what you, you mentioned off air, this was initially a five star. You took it down to four star. I mean, still a lot to like there, right? Yeah, but I still like it a lot. Don't so what wrong. is it that pulled you off of it? You know, I find it a lot less propulsive than Kane is sort of my number one. And I, that's part of the charm of Vertigo. Don't get me wrong. I do. I love the driving around and the looking and the, the gazing. And I mean, that's sort of what the movie's about in a lot of ways. And we'll, we'll get into that as we mm-hmm. sort of crack it open analysis. We'll sort of talk about it. But I guess it's sort of limited in its perspective. You know, I think there's only so much there there. Um, it, it is sort of a pretty, I know it was one of the first to do it, but it is a, the idea of doubles that comes up in this film, specifically the idea of like, a double that helps facilitate a murder is like so well trod uh, at this point. I mean, a lot of the times it's been well trod because people are doing like a loose riff on vertigo. Mm-hmm. I mean, so that's, you know, credit where it's due. I guess I'm just like, I'm more interested in Midge. I'm more interested in things that the film doesn't want to show me. Um, 
and I'm I am less interested in driving around San Francisco all the goddamn day. I will say that. <laughs> I think there's a little bit too much of it. Um, but it is beautiful to look at. I mean, I think it is stunning. I didn't catch up with this until 2017, mm. like late 2017. Yep. I finally watched it for the first time with our friend uh, Samford. Uh, and I, I did, I was, I had my hair fully blown back by it because I didn't really know anything about it. Mm. I knew it was kind of like hard split into two halves and I knew that there was like sort of a doubles thing going on. Uh, but that was about the extent of my knowledge. And I did totally like just, I was wrapped up in it. I guess this time I was much more annoyed by Scotty. Just like find him. Mm, he's an absolute putz. He's so stupid. He's yeah. so colossally dumb. It's truly maddening. Uh, well, the he, blood flow has changed directions for him. <laughs> That's really, the problem. He really does give uh, yeah. Ernest Burkhart a run for his money in terms of stupidest movie characters or um, Walter Paisley and uh, Roger Corman's A Bucket of Blood. Like, truly one of, <laughs> one of the dumbest movie characters of all time, Scotty. Um, I guess I just... I want more of it, and as much as I am like interested in sort of the psychosexual stuff, the obsession... It just doesn't give me enough to like, especially the once we get sort of past like the high excitement of the the way the film chooses to uh, portray his psychotic break or his his uh, his psychiatric break, whatever you want to call it. Um, that is such a like fun and like cool bit of filmmaking mm -hmm. that it does sort of for me struggle to like recapture that energy even when we. The end is very exciting. So you don't care for like the gray dress and the lighting and the, the, the soft focus lens and the way in which, you know, that scene with the green and, and, and her in the gray dress, like that doesn't do anything for you. It's pretty cool. It's fine. Okay. Yeah, it's interesting. Like that's that, that's the most compelling scene of the whole movie for me is in that section that you're talking about. Is in, in that second half where he's trying when, to make when, her when up. She, when she finally comes out, when he's fully... That ethereal dressed, moment. No, yeah. when, she's, when she's fully dressed as Madeline. Yeah. yeah. I they, guess that's a fine moment. Yeah, I'm not as compelled by that as I am by the first half and like the middle portion of the movie. Because hmm. I'm just like, yeah, figure it out. For God's sake, Scotty. Like, it's not until he's... I'm, I'm trying not to do too many spoilers, but the thing that makes him finally figure it out, it's like, seriously, that's what it took? Come on, bro. But again, the movie is compellingly made insofar as like the... As we talked about, the costuming and the hair and makeup design. Like, it really does do a compelling job of making one person look like different people. Mm -hmm. It is really quite a, a feat of cinema uh, as far as just like, you know, putting a person in front of a camera and, you know, the, the, the little things that we don't talk about as often as we probably should as, as far as those like the design of a character. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we think about character design and animation a lot, but we don't always think about character design when it comes to like putting hair, a hairdo, makeup and a costume on somebody and using that to tell a story. Um, and I guess we do get a lot of that here uh, with Carlotta, with um, Judy, with uh, Madeline, sort of this this intersecting thing, and, and the same with Marjorie uh, Midge. If you if you're her friend, mm -hmm. I think Midge. We we get a lot about her through her costuming and her like her very chic single gal apartment. Mm -hmm. Like, there's a lot of uh, God. The production design of this movie is nuts. I mean, there's so many lush interiors in this movie that restaurant club that they go to yeah. I think of as one is just yeah. like whoa uh, the office that um, what's the husband's name Elspeth or whatever yeah. Um, yeah. Elster Elster, Elster. The, his office is like woof yeah because there's wood paneled from ceiling to Sick. floor it's wild so like yeah there's plenty of like visuals that I'm 
I can see why people are obsessed with this movie because there are visuals in this movie that I just find like mm-hmm. I can just look at it all day. But there's just a, a few too many scenes of driving around and a, a few too many beats where the plot's just kind of dragging its feet. I think we could get this down to a clean 135, 140. Um, I think there is something there to letting it breathe. So maybe 145 to 150 like is the optimal run for this. But we're right at two hours with the actual runtime here. And I don't know that we need all that driving around. Um, but I see why you guys like it. I, I guess the big, the... The huge, whether you want to call them noir or express German expressionist, the big black and white photography and the the larger than life swings that Citizen Kane makes and its sort of large scope focus just appeal to me a lot more, mm-hmm. I think, is, is ultimately what it comes down to. What What is it about this that like speaks to you guys more than something like Kane? I, well, I, I think... I guess both of them have slowdowns in the second act. And, That's fair. And but I, I care less about the slowdown because I don't care about Kane. I, I I you know he's you're more invested in this mystery that's propelling mm-hmm. forward. Yeah. And know, I and I do what, like a mystery thriller because it does restrict us to Scotty's point of view fairly well. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. we are really left as an audience wondering like, what is going on? Mm-hmm. Yeah. What is all this Something's nonsense? Wrong like, here. Is she possessed? Like, what is the you know? validity of this claim made against Madeline that she's being possessed by some Spanish princess maiden whatever she do is do you believe I I listened to uh, the next best picture show um and that's one that's part of their uh, <laughs> it's a great title it is it's really good um or the next I'm sorry it's just the next picture show I'm conflating it with a oh. separate podcast yeah well I thought it was I knew the other one. I thought it was, yeah. oh man, well, it's there's a better the best joke. picture show or something. Yeah, the there's best picture there's show. one that's got to do with um, the awards race. But the one I'm thinking of is just the next The comparison show. one. Yes. Yeah. Which where they compare an old movie and a modern movie. Yeah. But they use that line from Vertigo, the, do you believe a person can reach out of the past <laughs> and take possession? I don't know why I'm doing Daniel Plainview. Um, but yeah, that, the first time I saw Vertigo, I was just like, oh, there it is. Leo I had the Leo, the Leo pointing at the screen. Mm-hmm. So I love the like, Obviously, you know, like this isn't a mystical film, right? I so I totally get what you're saying. There is like, you know, that there's this some, is not something stinks here. Something smells yeah. bad, but it is really compelling to like wonder. Well, maybe there is something supernatural going on, and it it does a good job of like not letting you know for a while. Yeah, and it continuously kind of pulls you in, drawing you slowly down this, you know, drain tub of a mm-hmm. spiral of like what is happening until we get that climactic moment at the bay. Mm-hmm. Uh, which I think takes it to the next gear mm-hmm. and really, you know, setting on the, the relationship between Scotty and, and um, uh, Madeline there. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that thing, but again, visually, you know, I mean, it's not to sell Citizen Kane short because visually I think it is very impressive. I think there's still some stuff that's kind of wooden about Citizen Kane and some of the, like, the montage at the dinner sequences feels just a little wooden to me in some ways. It plays a little long to me. Yeah. Okay. For what it's doing. Um, but, you know, I like, I mean, I'm not going to say anything shortcoming about Citizen Kane because I think it is very visually, uh, it's a feast mm-hmm. in many ways. Um, but the color, I mean, it's just something about Vertigo Pops. It re- the, mm-hmm. yeah. And I say that, I mean, I mean, Psycho, I mean, black and white, right? Sure. It's not vi- super visually compelling, I don't think, as a film. No. Um, especially compared to this or even Rear Window. Um, but just the look of this film and then all of those sequences, that mental break moment, which is, I think, put together by somebody else, right? Uh, Bass, maybe? Yeah. Worked on it? Uh, I think yeah, Bass right. does some of the visuals here. 
Um, there was a special thanks in the credits. And I was trying to figure out who that was for. I don't remember now. Um, but anyway, there's a, you know, he does something like this in Spellbound or yeah. where he works with Dolly. Yeah. Yeah. With the dream sequence. Yeah. Yeah. So he's doing something like this already, you know, so bringing in some of that, you know, we've been talking about that term psychological realism mm. right, for the last three weeks now. And, and so, I mean, that is widely apparent here mm-hmm. and the kind of driving motivation of the German expressionism, uh, Hitchcock's wearing that on his sleeve here, I think. And so it's all that. And then just kind of the, the mystery of it, the kind of, maybe it's a ghost story, maybe it's not. And then this kind of tale obsession that it becomes is, is really, I mean, it's just, just much more in my wheelhouse, I think narratively than something like citizen Kane, which is eh, uh, as far as like that narrative element of Charles yeah. Foster Kane. Mm, yeah. Much more compelled story wise. Yeah. I agree with that. I guess that's fair. I, I, I guess I'm what I'm compelled by is the way Kane like reaches out of the past and speaks to the present time in a way that I don't, I see where vertigo, like you can, I mean, there's through lines to our culture for sure. Yes. I'm not going to act like we have uh, evolved as a culture in America well, since Vertigo. If, uh, if you know, Charles Foster Kane is manifest in social uh, network, then mm-hmm. Vertigo is very much manifest in Phantom Thread or sure uh, Lady Macbeth or... The be- the beguile, right? I mean, you yeah, know, any of these I, sorts of I think those are really Crimson great. Peak and yeah, you know, these sort of gothic romances or erotic thrillers or mm-hmm. whatever it is. Mm-hmm. I mean, Basic Instinct. I mean, really, yeah. kind of does the same sure. kind of thing. I mean, Body Heat. That was one mm-hmm. of the ones yeah. I was yeah, the Palma alluding to earlier. Um, okay, well, I guess it's time for us to expand things, shall we? Yeah, why don't you tell them how to do that? So the next part of the show is called Expanding the Syllabus. And what this is, is we uh, we build a syllabus around the week's assigned viewing. Sometimes it's just other movies, sometimes it's articles, uh, but it is always trying to broaden our understanding of the film uh, by looking at things that connect to it and, and try to basically we were going to build a class that like pulls on one theme that we're particularly interested in. And sort of draws that out into something you could teach to people. Yeah, that's right. Um, do you know, have one of those things prepared for us? Yeah, so I'm I'm very interested. I mean, obviously this film is influential, and you can see that when you like look at the degree to which sort of the the biggie on the eye chart stuff in Vertigo has like found its way into all of not all of, but a good portion of film history, sort of this idea of doubles and obsession and obsessions with doubles. And it's something that you can find a lot throughout, especially the last 20 years. I feel like, I mean, one of the most early and well-known examples of this sort of thing is Bergman's persona, which predates vertigo by a little bit, a couple of years, like four years. I was, cause it's, Vertigo is like what sixty eight and Persona is like sixty four. Is that right? Oh, I Persona is in sixty six. Sixty six. Yeah, something. Like, I knew I was a little. Vertigo is sixty eight, right? Fifty eight. Fifty eight. Oh, oh yeah. shoot. Okay, that's wow. I mean, Hitchcock's doing doubles in the forties, and that's true. And on the Alfred mm-hmm. Hitchcock presents, he's got stories about doubles and gotcha. Okay, so I guess my my point is like these are two really well known, but I think, I mean, I was just kind of looking at since the turn of the twenty first century, we've got. Uh, Lynch's Mulholland Drive, Denis Villeneuve's Enemy. I forget who did the double with Jesse Eisenberg. Uh, I forget, forget who that filmmaker is. Uh, and then we've got um, Todd uh, Todd Haynes and um, Sam Birch's uh, May December, um, which I love. And you can mm-hmm. go listen to it. We did an hour with many friends of the show on that movie just a couple weeks ago. You can go check that out. But I think all of these movies, like 
have some interesting thing to say about sort of the the pervasiveness and ineffability of like the just like people becoming other people throughout our culture uh you know this sort of like seeing someone and coveting what they have and trying to adopt it and make it your own um and that's just like one angle to take at this that's not even like that's the tip of the iceberg i feel like i mean whether it's especially when you get into the Mulholland Drive, which is like way more psychosexual explicitly than this film, um, mm-hmm. it, or get into May December, which is like getting into sort of societal conventions about the roles of women in, in our society and what's expected of them versus doing what you want to do versus, you know, breaking all rules and norms. You know, that's a great film for kind of looking at seeing someone and coveting not what they have but how they move through the world um whether that's a good thing for you to want or not (laughs) and i think that's i guess why maybe why i'm less interested in vertigo is i see in these other films like a really a more thoroughly explored version of the ideas in vertigo and i guess this is maybe one of those times where a film's importance and influence sort of hurts it a little bit for me i just see times where I've seen a double story, like kind of tug on these threads that I'm more interested in and, and explore those a little bit more thoroughly. That said, I think you cannot understate how important this movie is. Again, I, th- I thought persona predated this. I've totally had my ears flipped around. Um, so again, knowing that this comes in 58, especially, and that makes sense. The, the late fifties technicolor, man, some of the most technicolor to ever color. Just mm-hmm. Holy crap. Why, why makes you wonder why movies stopped looking like that. Uh, truly is nuts uh, because it is just ridiculously gorgeous eye candy. Um, but yeah, the, the doubles, uh, even in something like Patterson where it's less obsession based and it is more sort of a, an interesting sort of flicker at the edge of the frame. It's just sort of an interesting, weird mm-hmm. wrinkle. Um, it is something that sort of has become suffused in cinema and is just something that's kind of a preoccupation of the movies of the idea of the doppelganger us is one I haven't even thought to mention yet. Oh yeah. Because it is, it, in a much, pick. yeah, in a much more like horror suspense context. Mm-hmm. Well, it's inflecting it with the racial concept as well, Sure, which is it. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Um, I mean, all of these like are taking the same idea and doing something very different with, it. and I think that's, what's mm-hmm. interesting. And especially like I haven't seen the double, but enemy this, this, concept is so much used to explore like uh women in film and it's interesting in enemy the way it, it kind of takes this this uh the idea of the double which is usually a, a women becoming each other thing and and turns it on its head with enemy um and kind of explores a much grosser direction because of the way dudes be uh i, I again i i think just talking about this is making me like for it to go a little bit more uh, just because I do, I do find this good. Like, it's so exciting, right? It is such a like a weird quirk of our of movies. I don't know of other stories that like get into. Maybe it's just because of the nature of it being visual. Uh, I'm trying to think of. I guess that doubles exist throughout storytelling history. Mm-hmm. You know, doppelgangers, gothic are, lit. You yeah. know, had lots of that. That's sure. a typical plot point. Yeah, but I'm just it's it's interesting to me like what well-tread territory this is, and especially like it, when it becomes about like psychological obsession with another person. I think it's it's really interesting. What about uh, you guys? What did you bring to the table this Arthur, week? Arthur, what kind of syllabus you got? I guess I'm just going to do the Hitchcock thing. Do uh, it. Teach the Hitchcock class is, is where I'd go with it. And so, yeah, um, I think we would start 
I mean, go back to the early days. Um, Hitchcock is working, gets his start uh, doing some artwork, art uh, stuff for, I believe it's Columbia that builds in London or Paramount. Oh, Paramount. I think you're going all the way back to Germany when he was working for UFA. Well, he works in Britain first before he goes to oh, Germany. Oh, that's right. That's right. He works in the art department uh, for a film studio there. I can't remember exactly which one uh, builds a London. It's a, it's a Pathé office, isn't it? No, it's it's American studio. It's Paramount. Is, or is one it, of the, oh, okay. it, I can't remember which one. I can't remember either. Um, but he's doing art department stuff there. He's doing intertitles. Um, does a couple feature or films there, I believe. Then he goes to Germany, uh, which is where he gets exposed to the German expressionism. He spends a lot of time going to concert halls, uh, museums, taking in the culture there, um, and obviously gets to start applying that. So he comes back to England. Um, we'd probably look at The Ring, one of his first early silent shorts. Uh, we'd probably look at a few of those, uh, but we'd probably start proper with The Lodger. Mm-hmm. Uh, which Hitchcock alludes to being his first fully formed Hitchcock film, um, even though he's done some features before that. And so this is all pre-war, I assume, right? Yeah, Lodgers. Well, after World War One, I, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess the interwar. Yeah, 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 these yeah. are silent films. Yeah, That's... Lodgers, silent, nineteen twenty something. Okay. Um, but yeah, he uh, he does the Lodger, and this is one of the first inclinations where he uh, shows his interest in. Um, the idea of the sort of darkness under the surface, which is something we see with him kind of throughout. Um, There's the idea of, you know, this lodger at a home and the mob mentality that sort of takes over with the kind of unknown character of this lodger um, and evaluate and analyzing and evaluating and looking at the people as they sort of make kind of mob mentality decisions about who this person is and if they are, uh, this kind of feared criminal or if they are maybe somebody else. Uh, but Hitchcock's really interested in the kind of motivation and motivations of people. Um, and so we do that. Um, we got to look at 39 steps, uh, which really sets the stage for his kind of wrong man on the run thing that he does uh, throughout cinema. Uh, and then we would look at the lady vanishes uh, one of his train movies. He's fascinated with trains. He's very interested in trains. Uh, this kind of becomes a, a, a running motif throughout his films. He wanted to be a conductor at one point when he was young. Awesome. Um, and so we look at that. Don't we all? I, I, yeah, yeah. I mean, it would be kind of cool. Um, but I want to be like a passenger train conductor, not like a like unstoppable. Like I you don't, don't want to be, you don't be Denzel. No, no, I, I couldn't be Denzel. Are you kidding me? <laughs> I, I, I'm Ethan Supley. Yeah. <laughs> I hear you. Let the train go. Um, so we, we take a look at those two movies and really begin to see the ideas, the wrong man, uh, the kind of German expressionism. That's a big part of his aesthetic. Um, the kind of psychological realism that comes along with that. Uh, and then, he goes to America, uh, and we're going to look, I think, primarily at Rebecca when he gets there. Um, he comes in, sells Nick, wants a follow-up to Gone with the Wind. Um, and so he brings Hitchcock over. They do Rebecca. It wins Best Picture. Hitchcock gets shut out of that. Uh, directory, because Selznick gets the Oscar for that. Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to talk about the tensions between Selznick and uh, Hitchcock, and they're kind of noted... Uh, rivalry uh, and the ways in which this leads to Hitchcock kind of doing the John Ford thing of shooting only what needs to be shot, uh, what he deems the most important, the most relevant uh, to exercise more control over the final product of the films. Uh, and then we're just probably going to start jumping around there. Uh, once he gets to America, we probably talk about collaborations. So we'd probably look at North by Northwest and talk about Cary Grant. Um, we'd probably look at rear window to talk about Jimmy Stewart and Grace Kelly. 
Uh, we're going to talk about um, Tippy Hedron. We'll probably talk about the birds. Yeah. Uh, we got to talk about the Hitchcock blondes. So mm-hmm. we'd be analyzing all of that. Theoretically, we can go into uh, psychoanalysis. We can go into uh, feminism. We can talk about the male gaze, which I know you're going to talk about a mm-hmm. little bit. Uh, we could talk about um, any number of that. We could talk about the auteur idea. Um, we can complicate that. We've talked about this kind of ad nauseum in the past few weeks, I think. But the idea of um, auteur and uh, collaboration, mm-hmm. right? Uh, notably, uh, uh, Bernard Herrmann. Uh, kind of makes note on Psycho about um, using the violins in the shower sequence, which majorly informs that scene. Mm-hmm. Totally. So we got to talk about that. We've already talked about Dolly and uh, Spellbound and the way all that kind of works together. Um, and so, yeah, we look at all of that. Uh, we talk about his fascination with just trying different things and the way in which he's looking at William Castle. He's looking at other these sorts of uh filmmakers who are doing the big road show Orson Welles thing you kind of mentioned last mm-hmm. week and how that leads to psycho uh which is not supposed to be this grandiose thing it is supposed to be this grimy B movie uh, and it becomes one of the most important American films I think and helping to launch a complete subgenre of film uh so we're going to talk about psycho uh, quite a bit as well um and then we'll I guess go into the outer works and talk a little bit about Marnie Topaz, kind of him falling out of his uh, torn prime, curtain, yeah, family plot where it all wraps up. I never saw Family Plot. Is it, I any, is it any? Okay, I don't know no. if it's any good or no, not. I've always kind of stayed away from it because yeah, of those questions. So, uh, yeah, but yeah, we just talk about Hitchcock. He's an interesting guy. Class, yeah. There's talk lot. about uh, I mean, yeah. how his dad had him arrested as a child. Cool. Uh, which put a, a eternal so. uh, fear of the police into him, which we see in Psycho with the hard-nosed cop who's constantly questioning Marion and putting fear into Marion's mind as she is on the run. So, yeah. A wise man fears the police. Mm -hmm. Dustin. Because they see further than him (laughs) and they'll bind him with their ancient logics. (laughs) Something like that. Uh, I think I'm going to do... If I were to teach this in a class, I, w- I would teach this in a theory class. Um, I would teach this in Introduction to Film Criticism and okay. Theory. And so the essay is going to be Laura Mulvey's incredibly um, seminal essay, which is uh, Visual Pleasures in the Narrative Cinema, which is um, fundamentally about the films of Hitchcock and mostly about Vertigo as far as our examples go. But it's more about Hollywood cinema in general of the uh, 40s, 50s, um, the 30s, 40s, 50s. And this idea of what we talk about all the time, the male gaze. And uh, the theory is this. Uh, so we're, I'm, I'm, I almost feel like this is somewhat of a cheat because we're going to do analysis a little bit here. But just the, the, the high points here before we get into spoiler territory is this, is that cinema situates the viewer that there are there are three lookers uh, when you're viewers, when you're uh, watching a movie. There are you yourself as a spectator. There is what the characters are looking at. And we sort of follow a point of view of uh, filmmaking there. And then there's simply the eye in quotation marks of the camera. And the way the camera looks and the the way in which the viewer is situated is that they are situated as a man looking at women, that women become objects and men become actors. And so the passivity of women and the activity of men, uh, which is part of patriarchy and how that's all framed, becomes this thing. And there's also this uh, concept called fetishistic scopophilia, um, which is scopophilia is simply the love of looking, that we love to look. And the way in which we're taught to look and the way we're taught to look with desire is to look upon the female body. And this is uh, shown in a couple ways that men, when, we're, when, when we see them in movies – 
We see them in uh, mid, middle, middle shots or long shots, and they're active. Uh, women, we see them fragmented. So I think about the introduction of Lana Turner in The Postman Always Rings Twice, which begins at her ankles moving up her legs to finally a full torso shot. And the idea is that she's cut into pieces and that the pieces are the individual objects of looking for Andrew Garfield's character in that film. And so that is uh, one of the most prolific and, again, sort of influential bits of film theory from the 1970s, uh, looking back on cinema. Now, it's definitely got some shortcomings because there are definitely um, across-the-grain viewing strategies that certain uh, viewers take. And so you can look more as a straight woman. You can look more as a gay man. You can look as a gay woman. You can uh, anywhere in various spectrums of uh, that kind of looking is certainly possible for various viewers. However, uh, the idea that sort of ties into all of this, I think, though, is it does frame us in a certain kind of way. And what Scotty does throughout the movie is that kind of looking as objects of desire, objects of covetousness. And the movie I'd pair with this is um, Jonathan Demme's uh, 1993 classic, Silence of the Lambs, which is a movie all about looking with desire. Um, Which does kind of make you wonder if you need to fold in Carol Clover in Women in Chainsaws, mm, because it feels like kind of an outgrowth of... The final girl and then yeah. that kind of thing. I mean, absolutely. I mean, there's it's definitely related text for a paper yeah. if you were going to do something with it. And I, I think it that, that is a interesting um, point of contact between those two kind of different theorists um, there. But they are both taking psychoanalytical feminist points of view uh, in their approaches. And so I think there's definitely a lot of overlap and bleed over between them. But that's what I would do is, is sort of just talk about these movies that are about looking and there's, there's a number of, I mean, rear window is obviously a, a, another primary illustration in the movie, which is all about watching these people's lives and reconstructing them in a certain way. And the ways in which, uh, the man directs the man, even when he's immobilized, he's active. Um, Jimmy Stewart's character is in that movie and he directs, um, I was about to say Doris day, but it's Grace Kelly, um, directs Grace Kelly as she performs action for his viewing camera or his viewing lens. Mm. And so I, I think that's a major sort of seminal piece of sort of critique of patriarchy and uh, that this movie is a great example of that kind of thing at work. And so that's what I would do to teach the class and what I have done in the past uh, to teach this in a class. So there you go, dear listener. Your syllabus just got much longer. I believe now it's time we get down to business. carry over from last week because here's the thing that really works for vertigo but hitchcock in general for me and why i think ultimately it may stand up above these other movies we've been talking about um is the idea last week we talked on citizen kane about how introducing this to younger audiences and newer audiences it takes a setup for them to appreciate it Mm. that we have to over explain why this thing is important. You have to explain who Hearst is. You got to explain Mank mm-hmm. and him. Yeah, I gotcha. And like when I assigned this an intro film, I didn't give him a context of the film. Yeah. I uh, just, I want them to watch it as blank of a slate as they can and have them form ideas about it and, you know, thoughts about it. And by and large, they bounce off of, you know, Citizen Kane. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and that's kind of my thing about it is, you know, without that context of knowing why it's important or why it's great kind of hurts some of that, but showing them a Hitchcock without context by and large students 
in my experience and the few times the times I've gotten to show them Hitchcock movies, uh, whether it's Psycho, whether it's Rewindo, whether it's Vertigo, uh, Shadow of a Doubt, um, without any sort of historical context, they connect with these movies in a way they don't with some of these other things that are off-putting or mm. kind of obscure or they're not interested in. But there's a way in which Hitchcock's films have, I think, traditionally, and part of, I think, why they stand the test of time is that audiences are able to connect with them in interesting ways. And I think Hitchcock is a very interesting person because I think we often look at him as the great American auteur, that he is very much fascinated with aesthetic and look and visual, and that's all very important to him. But the other major thing for Hitchcock was he wanted the audience to be entertained. Mm -hmm. And there's a weird place that he exists as this line of... I guess commercial tour of it's an, he's an industrial artist. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's very, 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 you know, determined to make something that looks good is visually interesting, visually innovative. I mean, we haven't even talked about the Hitchcock zoom, mm -hmm. uh, which, you know, that dolly zoom that gets used here, uh, multiple times, great effect, which has become, you know, one of the most common pieces of film grammar. Now, uh, you see it in every commercials, you see it in made for TV movies. I mean, Almost anybody uses that shot now, right? And it is him doing that sort of innovative, you know, work to not necessarily rewrite. I don't think the grammar textbook like Wells does, mm -hmm. but he's definitely introducing new language or at least new to American audience language um, and effectively doing so while also still being able to tell these stories that are entertaining or in captivating or I don't know. There, there's that thing about him that I think makes him so interesting you know i've long joked in the past about the way in which in 50 years there's a way we're going to be looking at maybe like a michael bay in the same way we look at hitchcock because michael bay i think has very much got a visual sense and a keen visual eye and very much set on aesthetic but he's also set out to entertain you know i don't know mm. i i don't know that bay's going to have that impact of you know hitchcock sure but Hitchcock was a commercial director. Absolutely, yeah. Making movies for audiences. He didn't care about logic. Mm. He doesn't care about, you know, stepping outside of the cinematic, uh, I guess, boundaries to create something super counter, mm -hmm. you know. I love his discussion of the plausibles with Truffaut. Yeah. You know, and that the plausibles are the ones who are always looking for the plot. Those the cinema sense people. He's yeah. like, I don't care about that nonsense. I just want to. If it works in the movie, that's all yeah. that matters. Yeah, right. yeah. that's the suspension of disbelief is a big part for him, I think. And so then that's the thing that I think is so we've put him on such a pedestal mm -hmm. as one of the great American auteurs that I think we tend to forget that at the end of the day, he just wanted to tell make movies that were entertaining, mm -hmm. but he had a very particular way of doing it. And I think that's still the thing that for me really stands out in his work and why it kind of. I have more of a, I guess, love for it than some of these other films is because without the context, I can still show it to a student and they can be captivated mm. by it. We've got a student um, who will be graduating soon who, sh you know, she saw Vertigo for one of Sells' classes and she's just completely enamored with that movie, has written about it uh, since taking that class and is still captivated by it. And we've shown Rear Window to, you know, 30 to 40 students in, in, in a setting and they're still enraptured by mm -hmm. what Hitchcock does. Mm -hmm. And the same thing with psycho. I showed a psycho in a comp two class and 
everybody's very invested in where where it goes. And so that that's the thing about it that really makes Hitchcock, I think, so interesting to me is the way in which he finds ways to, I think, marry these two worlds uh, in very unique and interesting ways. Mm-hmm. Dustin, you're... I don't know, somebody that I would identify as more of a Wells guy, generally speaking. I I like Wells a lot, I, I, I but I think I'd rather watch a Hitchcock movie than Wells in general. I mean, it's like, hey, Hitchcock or Wells today, I'd take Hitchcock. Um, gotcha. And I like later Wells. Well, he's got, Wells. kind of got the stronger career, by and large, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. he also has a larger body of work. Right, well, and he's got this period where he just doesn't miss, ever. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, you know, The Magnificent Ambersons is okay. I mean, you know, I, I mean, I like it, but um, they're, they're, I mean... I like the trial, um, the Kafka movie he did with. Um, uh, speaking of a Hitchcock connection here with um, Norman um, Anthony Perkins. Anthony Perkins, his name just went out of my head there. Um, I, I really enjoy that movie, and Chimes of Midnight's good. Um, I love it. F for Fake. I can watch it like all the time, but he doesn't have the same sort of. I'm not compelled to watch Wells in the same way. Well, I sit down and watch Wells. I'm like, oh, that was good. I didn't know I wanted it. But it's, it's sort of like you go to a new restaurant and everything's good on the menu. That's the way I feel about um, Wells is that it's new. And I, I'm not sure if I want this or not. But then I'm always delighted. Hitchcock is more like comfort food for me. Mm, it is uh, something gotcha. I, I know I'm going to have a good time and I'm going to eat till I'm full. And so, yeah, I, I, I j- that's my general attitude towards Hitchcock. Okay. I just they're both such you know, big blind spots for me. I've, I think I've seen just one Wells and two hitches. Mm. So, I mean, they're, that's they're, not enough. I know. I know they're, they're guys that are kind You've of just seen this in psycho then. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I was trying to think if I had seen, Rear seen Window. Rear Window. I was always trying to think, but I, I think I've only seen clips of it. I don't yeah. think I've got like some base. I've seen Disturbia and clips of rear window, yeah. which <laughs> sort of like it gives you the working knowledge. Is that yeah, right? yeah. 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 <clears throat> so I have an idea, but yeah, I'm just kind of interested in both of them because they are such Titans and, and Hitch is sort of interesting and in his sort of transatlanticness. I mean, that, that is always interesting to me mm-hmm. for a filmmaker's story. Even somebody like Nolan, who I'm not, as enamored with as a lot of men of my generation. I, I'm still interested in him as sort of, you know, this transplant who's neither at home in the UK or in the US and how that informs things. Mm-hmm. And so that's I've always been interested in that aspect of Hitch, of sort of the back and forth mm-hmm. and remaking his own movie is such a gangster move. I've always mm-hmm. thought that was really cool. Um, I, I am also interested, I guess, and the reason I, I asked you about, you know, how you relate to, and obviously Arthur kind of led us down this road, Dustin, but the other reason I brought it up is because I think Hitch is, as famous as Wells is sort of a director salesman. Sure. Sort of as far as like I- iconic, like yeah, no one will be the, allowed in the auditorium after the movie starts. I yeah. mean, that whole, I mean the silhouette, right? I you mean, see, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, that's yeah, it, the right. bald head, the cigar, the double chin. Yeah. Funeral March of the marionette. And, mm-hmm. and, yeah. So I didn't, you know, I mean, just, he's got TV shows. He's exactly. got publications. He's got movies. He's Yeah. He's yeah. Alfred Hitchcock. There, yeah. There's still Hitchcock magazine, mystery magazine yeah. out. Yeah. Oh, really? Still being published. That's so cool. So, yeah, I guess I just, he's interesting. I don't know that there's a director before or after who's had that kind of commercial appeal. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, you Spielberg's got, close, right? Spielberg or, or QT, as yeah. far as name above the title, guys. Even somebody whose name goes above the title all the time. Like Jordan Carpenter, Peele well, is kind of there. I was yeah. going to say, even but Carpenter because he was an not, actor. Yeah, I think Peele's being coming out of sketch helps. I think helps. Peele really markets himself in that Hitchcockian kind of space. Yeah, I think as, so. Yeah. Well, I think he it was very... Getting Twilight Zone was... I was just about mm-hmm. to say that, yeah. So, I mean, that's just a stroke of genius on everybody's yeah. part. Like, m- real meeting of time, place, and interest. Um, I guess maybe 
should we talk about shorts and anthology shows as a release or should we just stay on vertigo? Cause I'm, I'm it's interesting that that came up just kind of, I guess it's just opportunity Gark presents. Yeah. Yeah. I, mean, I guess we just tip our hats to that and move on. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a fun show, you know, mm-hmm. I think predating twilight zone, mm-hmm. if I'm not mistaken, but sounds right. Yeah, it's fun. And then really reinforcing that persona thing of him, right? Because he's doing the introductions, he's doing the outros and they're always mm-hmm. these cheeky little, little troll jokes bits, yeah. and they're fun and, mm-hmm. Uh, silly and the crypt keeper before the crypt keeper. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Before Serling, before the crypt keeper. And a lot of those little bits are used to great effect. You know, we talked about the two into the wave, um, that experimental film, um, mm-hmm. that we watched in the Hitchcock class, which is, uh, sort of a, a fake, I don't even know how to describe the plot of that crazy movie, but it, it is as though these interviews with Hitchcock talking about his fear of a double coming to kill him and a double does come to kill him. Great. Uh, and it's, uh, but it's mostly like coffee commercials and, mm-hmm. and his little, uh, in betweener bits, uh, for his crypt keeper bits, um, for this and that, 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 that persona itself sort of increases the mystery and also increases saturation. He's able to sort of really negotiate a very, very fine line where this is a crazy person, but it's also this person that um, has, you know, these great mysteries inside him, but everybody knows him. Like how you're able to do both of those things at the same time. Yeah. I didn't even think about when I was talking about doubles and obsession. I didn't even think about uh, Riley Stern's movie Duel. You just mentioned like the idea of the double Mm. coming to kill you. I didn't even think about that film where it's literally it's it's a movie about the double with uh, Karen Gillan yeah, yeah, yeah. and Aaron Paul uh, where again it's very much a, a sort of high concept. Gemini Man. Yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. Sure. Sure. That's another good one. And, and those movies are less like obsession centered, but they still have a, a, a note of that. Yeah. Um, especially just the idea of like only one of us can have this life. You know. Yeah. It's sort of an interesting pull there. the one yeah oh yeah the jet Li's the one mm-hmm. from, that we yeah. just covered mm-hmm. last february yeah sure we need the power yeah hell yeah yeah i mean alfred hitchcock presents is, i mean it's a fun show if you like and it really leans into the murder mystery stuff mm. typically more often we get some few doubles but i mean it's also a big part of psycho right because he filmed psycho using his crew from CBS, alfred hitchcock yeah. presents and that's fun. sets and stuff there which i think does you know again he's going for that sort of b-movie schlock thing mm. but uh, it also is a big part of like that movie's not visually outside of the sets super you know interesting mm-hmm. other than the the editing yeah. the visual camera work stuff is not incredible yeah yeah the lighting's pretty good but yeah there's not many it's moves. not vertigo yeah it's not vertigo no we're here to talk about <laughs> so well and i was about to say yeah. <laughs> to get us back onto vertigo i will say a moment that like makes my ears and eyes perk up of course is that opening which is just like the matrix rips whole mm, hog that just chasing like that on the opening rooftop, rooftop chase yeah. is like that shot is pretty much duplicated in the the rooftop chases in like Dark City and the Matrix mm-hmm. uh, and the dolly zoom yeah. to show you know what's going on with Jimmy's vertigo. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's so it's such a sick opening. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've Even heard those title openings are cool. Yeah, yeah, they are. Yeah, no, the opening titles are very cool. And I have heard the theory that maybe the whole story is an occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge. Yeah, I situation. just found that out. Yeah, you just heard about that interpretation. Yeah, I think that's dumb. I always think that's a dumb interpretation unless it's literally in the text. Uh, but it's fun. I, yeah. was, I Anytime somebody comes up with it, I go, oh, cute. But I just, it's not an idea I usually well, take very seriously. Well, I think the Mulholland Drive sort of, you know, pill has affected the way we think about the movie, too, because that movie mm. is kind of that. And sure, so, yeah. sure. Yeah, that movie is so dream logic oriented mm-hmm. that it is, it's impossible for it to not kind of bleed over onto Vertigo, mm-hmm. especially because they are, you know, the double thing. Yeah, they're definitely sisters. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. so speaking of 
all of the the lineage of Vertigo, right? And the, the horny double, let's say. Sure. <laughs> um, I, I guess, what do we think, to, to pull the Band-Aid off for anybody who's hanging out with us uh, and didn't watch Vertigo, the basic gist is this dude who uh, Scotty used to know, and now that Scotty is a retired detective, says... Scotty doesn't know. Scotty doesn't know that Madeline is Judy, and Judy mm-hmm. is Madeline. Uh, Ellsworth says, or Elster. Elster. <laughs> Ellsworth. <laughs> Elster says, hey, follow my wife. And Scotty says, okay, I'll follow your wife. And he follows the wife and falls in love with the wife, and then the wife turns up dead. And weird, weirdest thing... After going to a mental asylum for about a year and getting over his failure to save Madeline, he starts seeing this lady that looks an awful lot like Madeline, just, you know, more of a dirty blonde. Mm -hmm. And it kind of drives him insane. And he starts courting this woman. And by courting, I mean, he follows her to her home. (laughs) Right. And says, hey, go on a date with me. Uh, And she concedes uh and he ernie's is the restaurant that they ernie's. go to mm-hmm. so he he dolls her up close. to look like madeline and finally realizes oh wait this judy is madeline and the reveal of course is that judy helped elster uh kill madeline or at the very least the get, real madeline the real madeline was killed by elster and judy helped him make it look like a suicide and uh that that uh, scotty has been sort of a patsy in all of this mm-hmm. and in trying to get judy to one cop to her crimes and two help him get over his vertigo. Scotty takes Madeline slash Judy back to the scene of Madeline's uh, death slash corpse disposal. And uh, Judy gets scared by a nun and falls to her death. Nuns are scary. Nuns are scary, especially when they come out of the shadows. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Judy falls to her death and we are left with a Scotty cured of his vertigo, but probably more psychologically shattered than <laughs> scarred forever. <laughs> Uh, it's an inspiring story of how one man overcame his fears. Well, yeah. and it is. A, I mean, go back and look at any analysis. It is the story of the um, obscure object of desire is that he wants her. He wants her because, he, well, he initially wants her because he can't have her because she's married to Elster. Mm-hmm. And then he wants her and she's dead. And he finds Judy, who he at first does not know is Madeline. And he's trying to direct her, redress her to make her into the one. He doesn't want to be with the woman he's with. He wants to be with the woman who's dead. And so very, very Edgar Allan Poe, you know, sort of um, the Raven kind of stuff going on Mm. there. And so he can't have her, can't have her, can't have her. And then he realizes he has her. Not only has he completed the transformation in the dress up, but by recognizing the Carlotta necklace on her neck, um, that she actually is the proper Madeline from before. Then he's got her. And what does he do? He's very, very mean to her and forces that confession, which eventually results in her death because you can't grasp that thing that you desire. And if you grasp it, you no longer desire it. And Mm. so, yeah. um, I mean, Becca and I were watched this together. And uh, when he got to the end, she looked over and goes, I don't think I liked that. And I go, what do you mean? She goes, he sucks. And I go, yeah, I think that's the point. That's the point. Yeah. And she was like, ah, she's like, okay, that's fair. Uh, And I, I think we both talked about I think one of the most crucial shots of that finale is Judy's legs being pulled up the ladder into the belfry. Mm-hmm. And it's such a crucial shot. It's like underlining it's Judy is unhinged. not here of her own yeah. will. She's being drug up the stairs. Yeah. yeah. He is the director gone mad. Yeah. Uh, and I, I mean, it's easy to say, well, Scotty is like a director but God damn, is it right there? Mm-hmm. Is it just right there in the text in a way that like, of course this film excites film heads. Like it is about filmmaking a little bit and sort yeah. of that, that sort of cheeky way 
that some things are. Well, mm-hmm. and you begin to think about it as Hitchcock, and you have to start thinking about the Hitchcock blonde, right, where he's constantly trying to recreate this idea of this blonde uh, heroine or femme fatale that is ever-present in his films, and he's always trying to find the next one. We get Grace Kelly, and we get Eve Marie Saint, and we get uh, Kim Novak, and we get Tippi Hedren, and we get Doris Day, and there's Ingrid constantly... Bergman, yeah the search for the next blonde that will fill this spot and the kind of if you see the footage the, the kind of casting couch stuff that he does with tippy hedron which he, you think you can find the special features on the birds and the way he talks to her and the way he treats her you know notoriously treats her terribly when shooting the birds to the point of torturing her right and that moment where the scotty thing is art imitating life mm-hmm. by all accounts. Right. And he's also a continuation of what he's doing in rear window, which I mean, much more so the, the, the text there is on the surface of this being a director's movie is yeah. Scotty is in his apartment directing what Grace Kelly's doing, but also as he's sitting there and he's watching all of these different programs from his room, there's the romance and the horror and the tragedy and all of these different stories are playing out in very much the same way that we channel surf on TV. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, yeah. It, and, and going back to the idea of the auteur, when we kind of think about that, one of those, you know, there's the, the good storyteller, the technician and that interior meaning. And oftentimes with the auteur, that interior meaning is somewhat a meta narrative of mm. filmmaking. Mm. Right. And we see this in Billy Wilder when we see Sunset Boulevard, which is very much the story of, of Hollywood and of filmmaking and of what has happened. Um, but for Hitchcock, I mean, that is the kind of interior meaning that's often present in a lot of his films, especially I think once he comes to Hollywood and gets a lot more control of what he's doing. Right. And, and so I think that's how this sits in an interesting place. Yeah. Hell yeah. I think that's what makes him more interesting to me than somebody. And again, obviously I have less exposure to his career, but he seems to revile the role of director a little bit more so than somebody like Nolan, who, when you watch Oppenheimer, you're like, does Nolan feel like he's a great man of history like this? Cause it sure seems like he does. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting that Hitchcock seems to have sort of a, a low lecherous opinion of his profession. Well, some directors make slices of life. I make slices of cake. Is, is, that he, is a quote from him, you know, like that's, come on, yeah. dude, that's, that's such a good quote. Yeah. Come on. That's good. Um, I'm interested in two things that I, I wrote down, um, and we can get to them in any order, but like the role of detective or specifically the private Dick, the, mm-hmm. the former cop who cannot stop copping. Uh, and I'm interested in the role of platonic friend. Um, the, specifically the platonic opposite gender friend. Oh, Midge. Well, Midge is sort of a character. Well, there's not unlike ways Midge may not be a stand in for Alma. I think in some ways, mm-hmm, if, mm-hmm. if he is constantly chasing the Hitchcock blonde when mm-hmm. this, there's a blonde chasing him the whole time. No, there's yeah, a yeah. faithful, you know, right by his side since ginger decades, adjacent. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Even though Midge has aged, significantly better than scotty has since college apparently <laughs> he's, he's so i love jimmy stewart he is too old notoriously cast or old you know here yeah yeah a few times yeah um but yeah i, I think that's a big you know alma was a another big collaborator with mm-hmm. alfred i mean doing screenwriting and helping him kind of figure out the stories and what's going to take place and editing this is hitch's uh spouse yeah that we're talking about yeah, yeah. uh rebel rebel yeah rebel was maiden name but yeah Alma as his wife. And uh, I, I don't know that Midge may not be 
I like that read. Coming That's in there really a little interesting. Bit. Because she's, you know, platonic, but they also had a had an engagement. They were yeah. about to get married. Uh, so yeah, they, they it's, it's a romance that has cooled. It yeah. is not f- a fully platonic relationship. It's probably because she wears glasses. I mean, right? It, he, it, boy, does she, she remind you of like every quirky best friend character that would come in the coming decades. It's so funny. The, honestly, I, I always read that they slept together and he lost interest. Like the mystery was there and then it was gone. It was just, you know, what that's it was. Right? And, and that's why he never sleeps with Madeline. Mm. 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 I like this. Yeah. This and so the read. wanting, wanting, wanting and not actually having. That that you want what you can't have kind of a yeah, thing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You think it really is all wrapped up in, in that, huh? Mm-hmm. I mean, that does tie into the obscure object of desire read that you you were so often uh, uh, akin to, to grab onto, mm-hmm. which is, I mean, it's usually there. That's, uh, you know, the, the beauty of movies. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. a kind of an ever present theme. Yeah. Um, should we talk more about gazing and directorship? Yeah, I mean, the whole idea, uh, and again, the gazing itself is activity. I mean, you talked about his private detection uh, work, and what he does is he watches her. And again, the male activity then is, uh, because it is a lot of him just driving around, you say, he's not doing anything, but he's he's actively following her. He's that pursuing. Is, he's pursuing her. And what, what, what does Madeline do the whole movie? What does she do? Wander. Wander. She does nothing. She does what he does. She simply exists in space for him to look at her. Yeah. And mm-hmm. the whole time she's wandering, she's wandering so that he can watch her, follow her, and put together a story that's not even the real story. It's a fabrication mm-hmm. uh, for the sake of the uh, the crime her and Elster are trying to cover up. But the idea, again, is that her entire activity is to be looked upon. That is her entire role, mm. which is, again, the gender politics of the movie. Men do things and women look are, are looked at, you know. Uh, and so, uh, you know, that is, uh, again, this is sort of like the dark side um, viewing of the, of the movie. I guess the value is you see it, you see the, all the wrongness of it and then therefore can, you know, be repelled by it and suggest. And, and what, what uh, Laura Mulvey does in her essay is she advocates for a different kind of filmmaking yeah. uh, that, that would upset this kind of gazing. But that is, that is the thing, is that he looks, and that the camera then views her as, again, a spiral to fall down, that, that sort of uh, continuing sort of uh, close-up on her, uh, her bun-style her hair. hair there um, does that for us. Sure. Sure. I, it's interesting. The, uh, I don't know the, the ways in which it had, like I said, has this low opinion of, of the following of the gaze because like the score is there to tell you. Right. Mm-hmm. And again, there's the shot of for the legs going up the ladder, being pulled up the ladder. But in that final moment, like the score is going nuts. Mm-hmm. You are supposed to be in Judy's shoes a little bit more than, um, um, Scotty's shoes, I think. So it is. Is it is. Well, we get that moment when she writes the letter that she never delivers right in her apartment, mm-hmm. which is, I think, kind of a transitionary That's where it breaks point. Away, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. To put us more into her, her side of the well, thing, and, and we realize also, we get the flashback from her point of view yeah. as well. Yeah. Um, what so, happened? What yeah. really happened? Yeah. yeah. Um, because that, then at that point, we you're right. We are much more situated in her POV because we we know what's going on. So it is interesting that it like. It turns on its head in that way. The the sort of our allegiances, what we want, what we're looking for from the movie. It really does sort of all do an about face. Obviously, there's the big dramatic, you know, 
I don't know what to call the the psychic break sequence, mm-hmm. but oh yeah, the tunnel of madness. Let's go for it's, yeah, the uh, pure imagination. Well, the, the spiral. He actually spir- enters. He actually yeah, enters sure. it. The well, spiral. I mean, there, that is the, yeah. I mean, that's kind of the recurring motif of this film, right? And it's laid out all the way through it. It's visually in the hair and the makeup staircases. and the staircases, but also narratively, you've talked about driving around San Francisco. He's spiraling, mm. driving around San Francisco until he gets to that core. Uh, and there's very much a way in which after the break, the movie begins to double itself as mm-hmm. we go into the second part of this film, which is doubling what's happened in the first half and yep. ending at the same place at the mission. I mean, yeah, we it shows us the same locations in the same order, the art museum, the restaurant, the mission. Yeah, I mean, it is all right there. Um, it is interesting to let the film evolve and let the protagonist become the antagonist, which is always a cool choice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's definitely like one of the clearest... Uh, moments of depiction does not equal endorsement. I think, right. I think it's a very strong, like you have to be willing to, to recognize that, but I think it's a, it's, it's kind of right there. If you, if you uh, follow the turn that the movie takes around the two thirds mark. Um, yeah. It's, Scotty is an interesting character to, to like hang a movie on. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also interesting. Like the idea of, again, you kind of alluded to it. What does he do? He follows like the, the idea of detective as, uncoverer of truth right not not as enforcer of law but solver of puzzles mm-hmm. sort of um rat stuck in a maze uh, and that's that's what i'm always interested in when i'm talking about detectives i don't we're, not, we're talking about sort of the narrative conceit of a detective and sort of what they give us in a, in, the, in a protagonist or even as a secondary character and it is interesting to like i love when that kind of character is allowed to turn sour on itself because because the mystery either is unresolvable or unresolvable or the resolution is so unsatisfying. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's what's fun about this is like, I love a movie that sets up a, um, and this is a common trope. It sets up like a supernatural answer and then reveals, of course, a much more mundane and, uh, unsatisfying right. conclusion. And I, I mean, it makes, it makes sense for the arc for him to like fully lose it. Mm-hmm. I think. I mean, he is so embroiled in this. Well, and I think this movie is, you know, it marks the year of touch of evil, which is, you know, oftentimes, uh, named as the last film noir of the original cycle. And I think maybe this is the first post-noir movie. Um, or, you know, I, don't, I wouldn't call it a neo-noir, but I think it's, it is a post-noir because... It's playing with those ideas. It's playing with those ideas. I mean, we begin with a socially integrated character because uh, Scotty's got friends, he's got connections, and uh, his failure on the rooftop isolates him from his work. Uh, his, you know obsession pursuit um, isolates his relationship with Midge and then even those older connections he once had with the police force because of his failure to I mean failure to save the already dead Madeline. his emasculation yeah right? it's his continued sort of separate 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 um, isolate 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 uh, and as opposed to the already sort of isolated and I refuse to let you in kind of story that mm. you see in a film noir and the, the detective is crushed at the end rather than sort of like well it's fine yeah the truth is not in much in like the Greek tradition the truth does not set him free it damns him mm-hmm. yeah yeah and so yeah it, it, it really is kind of a post-noir in that sense and uh, which is really innovative you know uh for what you know hitchcock's doing and, and i think part of the brilliance of the movie so yeah any other final thoughts on vertigo i just want to give a quick shout out to the shot uh when he first starts following her and he uh, she goes to the florist and then he goes into that oh, another so, the, the flowers are another spiral too that, but there's also that Wizard of Oz moment where he opens mm-hmm. that door. Mm-hmm. He's in that mundane back room and he opens that door to just boom, this burst of color. It's yeah. just a 
Man, great shot. Great move. And the, the score in general, I and mean, we talked about how just bananas it is mm-hmm. there at the end, but the score is just great throughout. Yeah. It's haunting really throughout. Yeah, really good. Um, you know what? Oh, I haven't said this yet. It is kind of a vibes movie. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think, I mean, yeah. You're, you're not I wrong. Think you're, I think you're right. Yeah. I mean, if you, it is... It is very often laying back in the cut and just sort of saying, no, we're just going to hang out and watch these people mm-hmm. get on board or get out of the way. Yeah. And I, I do like that. I, I, I just, I need a, I need a third watch is what it comes down to. I do like it. I think you guys are wrong. I prefer Kane. Ah, uh, we couldn't turn him you around. You couldn't turn me, but I, you have convinced me I need to give this another watch because I might come up from four. I might, I might need to to give this another go. Yes. So, are we, is this another case of all shelves? Uh, yeah. On three, on on uh, countdown from three, three, two, one. Shelf. shelf. Yeah. It's all shelves. Yeah. We we like it. A if lot. it's on the sight and sound list, there's no reason you shouldn't own it. Yeah. It's pretty much a good rule of thumb. Well, we'll see when we what we say when we get to next week. But. Well, we'll talk about canonicity and we'll talk about the history of canon, the male mm-hmm. the maleness of canon, and sure, yeah, we'll, we'll get into it. Um, we're probably wrong about many things about Vertigo. Um, Dalton's going to tell you how you can tell us. That's right. If you want to let me know that I am right and Citizen Kane <laughs> should have been number two over Vertigo, you can send that feedback to Good Trash Genre Cast at Gmail That's Good Trash Genre Cast at gmail.com. It's just the name of the show you're listening to with a Gmail after it. Uh, you can also listen to shows like The Wheel of Randy with Dan Wade and The Praise Down with Heath and Alex, uh, two great shows that are under the Good Trash Media banner. Uh, if you want to help support our little project, you can go to Good Trash, I'm sorry, patreon.com forward slash GTM. That's patreon.com forward slash GTM for more info on supporting the show um, and what's in it for you, uh, sending you little movies, you picking a movie for us to discuss on the show, all kinds of fun stuff. Um, we're also all over the internet. You know, find, you can find us on Letterboxd. You can find out what you're going to be needing to watch on the show. If you follow all of our Letterboxes closely, you'll be able to follow the programming of the show. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, you know, so find us. He's Dustin Sells. He's Arthur Gordon. I'm Dollywood Squares. Uh, yeah, you're just Arthur Gordon on Letterboxd, right? You're not K. Excalibur. The Arthur you? Gordon. You're the Arthur Gordon on Letterboxd. Okay. There you go. Um, so go find us. Um, check out what we're watching. See uh, see what we think. Um, and, you know, find all of us uh, at various points talking about new movies over at the Cinematic Schematic. We show up as regulars on that show all the time. Dustin will talk about The Exorcist. Arthur will talk about Ninja Turtles. I'll talk about a Finchie. You know, pretty predictable stuff. But, uh, you know, we're, we're all over the damn place. Go find us. Arthur, it's time to close out uh, Anti-Trash, isn't it? It is. We arrive. At the final episode. Next week, we examine our hearts and our homes as we arrive at Ventois, Kirukomer, Vin Catherine, Brussels, and meet Jean Dillman, the greatest movie of all time. That's what the critics and That's the programmers the say. Um, I have a request for next week. What? I want the one star reviews. Okay. For this one. We do have to look at the Gene Dillman. We should have looked at maybe we could get like a couple of one stars for the other movies uh, for Vertigo. Just for kicks and grins. Yeah, just out of curiosity. Did, did you What'd look you at. Say? I'm just curious about the Citizen Kane and Vertigo one stars. Oh, I didn't look them up. Okay. I thought about it and I forgot. Yeah. Mostly. It's been a busy week. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I'm I'm certain that they are fire. Um, they'll be fun. I'm sure well, there I is. I found uh, a YouTube video when I was trying to find an uh, interview, uh, how to pronounce the title of this movie. Uh, Meet the worst, best film of all time. Nice. Great. This the movie cover hates photo you. Says the mo- <laughs> this movie hates you. <laughs> oh, goody. You know, sometimes, and I, already I see stills from Kane and Vertigo in the... Uh, but in this video essay, they're going to make an argument as to why... Uh, 
Um, the Turin Horse may be a better example of what Jean Dillman is doing as a slow cinema oh, thing. I might be compelled by that. I might, I, might, <laughs> I, might, I might be sympathetic. Hey, to at least that. I really like her. It feels very clickbaity, but I don't know that there may be something of more substance to it. I critique. really like the Turin Horse. Oh, that's that's interesting because I mean, no home movie. I'm going to send favorite. this link to you guys so you have it. Yeah, if you get a chance to watch it, and you too, listener, can check this out. Uh, what's what's the uh, the title of the video if people want to go find it? Um, the best worst movie. Sorry. Yeah. Meet the worst, quote, best film of all time. It's from Movie Wise. All right. There all right. Well, there you go. That sounds like fun. Get get read up before next week when we talk about freaking Gene Dealman. We're so excited. So you keep watching. We'll keep talking. We'll see you all next time.